but soft, what light through yonder window breaks. It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. A whole lot of us who grew up on Shakespeare know that this famous line comes from the balcony scene in the most lyrical and romantic of the Bard's plays, Romeo and Juliet. The play has captured audiences' imaginations for centuries, and it seems that every generation needs to put its stamp on the story. It's been filmed a number of times, most notably by Franco Zeffirelli, in an unabashed, realistic manner with authentic Italian backgrounds. And in an updated version by Baz Luhrmann for the MTV generation, starring Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio. The play itself is never very far away, with Shakespeare festivals throughout the world, producing it on a regular basis. Opera has also had its way with Romeo and Juliet, from the earliest version, a zingspiel by the Czech composer Georg Benda in the 18th century, to Bellini's I Capuletti e i Bontecchi, all the way to Bernstein's West Side Story, another updated version where the families are represented by warring street gangs. But in my opinion, the finest operatic version of the story is the one we'll be talking about in today's program. It comes out of France in the mid-19th century, an era steeped in Romanticism, when the works of Shakespeare were getting a second life in Europe, and the epic love story was something that every audience wanted to experience. The opera, the composer, Romeo et Juliette by Charles Gounod. I'm Nick Ravellis, and this is Opera Talk. Charles Gounod was one of those natural musicians who was drawn to music at a very early age. He was coached in composition by Paer and Alevi and entered the conservatory at an early age. Gounod was a protege of the great but eccentric Hector Berlioz, the composer of the infamous Symphonie Fantastique. Gounod tells the story that he would finish his classes as early as possible and then run to rehearsals of Berlioz's latest works. One of these was the elder composer's great Romeo and Juliet symphony. The piece made a lasting impression on Gounod, especially the finale, which describes the reconciliation between the two warring families, the Capulets and the Montagues. Remembering the main theme of that movement, he visited Berlioz a few days later and played it on the piano for him, impressing the older man with his musical imagination. We've spoken in this series before about the French national prize for music, the Prix de Rome, which a number of these opera composers won. It took Gounod four tries, but he finally won it himself, gaining the opportunity to spend two years in Rome studying and writing music. Included in the work that he did in Rome were found sketches of a Romeo and Juliet based on verses from the libretto used by Bellini for his own operatic version of the play. But this was a work that Gounod left uncompleted. He eventually wrote seven operas before his first success, the operatic version of Goethe's Faust. It eventually became the most popular opera in the entire world, by the turn of the century chalking up some 2,000 performances in Paris alone. The trouble with such a success is that you have to follow it with something even greater, and how could Gounod possibly top Faust? 
His thoughts must have gone back to those rehearsals at the conservatory, listening to Berlioz's glorious Romeo score and his own attempts at a version of Romeo and Juliet in Rome. What better story to follow the Faust legend than a tale of forbidden love from the pen of one of Romanticism's favorite early playwrights, William Shakespeare. We're not sure when Shakespeare's play was first produced, but it was probably sometime in the early 1590s. We can date it by using a line from Juliet's nurse, who refers to an earthquake 11 years ago, an event that occurred in 1580. Sources for the most important elements of the play, like the sleeping potion, the theme of two lovers from warring families, or a bittersweet farewell in a tomb, all of these predate Shakespeare's work by some thousand years. But the most immediate predecessor to Shakespeare's work was probably The Tragical History of Romeus and Juliet, an epic poem by Arthur Brooke published in 1562. This was a very popular poem in Elizabethan England, and it followed the work of Luigi da Porto, who wrote the original source quite closely. Listen to the opening argument of Brooks's poem. It encompasses the entire story, and you'll see how closely it fits with Shakespeare's final creation. Love hath inflamed twain by sudden sight, and both do grant the thing that both desire. They wed in shrift by counsel of a friar, young Romeus climbs fair Juliet's bower by night. Three months he doth enjoy his chief delight, by Tybalt's rage provoked unto ire. He payeth death to Tybalt for his hire, a banished man, he scapes by secret flight. New marriage is offered to his wife, she drinks a drink that seems to reave her breath. They bury her that sleeping yet hath life, her husband hears the tidings of her death. He drinks his bane, and she with Romeo's knife, when she awakes, herself, alas, she slayeth. Well, that's it in a nutshell. You have here the entire story of Shakespeare's play. But of course, what a difference Shakespeare's language makes. As one early critic put it, Brooks's poem is a leaden work, which Shakespeare transmuted into gold. After the success of Faust in 1859, Gounod composed four operas, none of which had much success. Yet even through those years of relative operatic failure, Gounod was still considered the leading French composer of opera. He showed interest in an operatic version of Romeo et Juliette in 1864 and turned to poets Jules Barbier and Michel Carré, the masters of the mid-19th century French opera libretto, to set the verses. They in turn used the original Shakespeare play for their inspiration, retaining many of the original lines. Gounod went to the coastal town of Saint Raphael in Provence, where he had spent time previously working on Mireille at the invitation of the poet Mistral. 
Here, between April and July of 1865, he worked sporadically on the score of Romeo and Juliet, being afflicted by a nervous illness that often disturbed his work during this period. The Mediterranean climate must have done him some good, as the entire opera was finally sketched out by midsummer, and within a year the work was ready for production. Gounod's opera was finally produced at the Opéra Lyrique in 1867 to great success. In fact, the greatest immediate success that the composer was to have in his entire career. Now, to understand just how successful the opera was for Gounod, realize that the Exposition Universelle of 1867 opened in the same month, April that year, attracting 9.2 million visitors to the French capital. This was a godsend to the Théâtre Lyrique and Léon Cavallo's production of Romeo et Juliette. The opera played to sold-out houses night after night. Based on its success in Paris, it traveled to all the major opera centers in Europe before coming back and becoming a staple of the Opéra Comique and finally the Paris Opéra in 1888. Today, it's still a staple of the French operatic repertoire. After a brief choral prologue, the opera opens at a masked ball being given by the Capulets for the birthday of their young daughter, Juliet, who is promised to the handsome young man, Paris. But soon Romeo, a Montague, and his friend Mercutio secretly crash the party when Romeo sees Juliet, he is immediately struck by her beauty. In her waltz song, Juliet tells her nurse Gertrude that she's not ready to settle down with Paris and she wants to enjoy her life. But when Romeo approaches her, it's obvious that their connection is immediate and passionate, with feelings that turn to dread and shock when they identify themselves as members of these two warring families. Tybalt, Juliet's cousin, discovers Romeo and the Montague gang and threatens to attack him, but he is restrained by Capulet so that the party can continue. The Montagues leave. In the night, Romeo sneaks into the garden outside the Capulet's palace to woo Juliet in the famous balcony scene. They are interrupted briefly by a group of Capulet's men looking for Montagues who have been seen in the vicinity. But in the ensuing duet, the lovers pledge to be married. After the nurse calls Juliet to bed, they say a tender farewell to each other. In the next scene, they come to Friar Lawrence's cell to be secretly married, and he gives in to their youthful enthusiasm, hoping that this union will heal the rift between the Capulets and the Montagues. But the following scene tells us how impossible a goal that truly is, as the Capulet men, led by Tybalt, taunt the Montagues, led by Romeo's good friend Mercutio. Tybalt slays Mercutio, and the enraged Romeo duels with Tybalt and kills him. Romeo is banished from Verona by the Duke, who urges the two houses to make peace. But the opposing camps continue to swear vengeance on each other. Romeo and Juliet part after one brief wedding night together, but the Capulets still intend to marry her to Paris. During preparations for the wedding, she appeals to Friar Lawrence for help. 
He gives her a potion that will make her seem to be dead and promises that she will waken in Romeo's arms. She drinks the potion as her father comes for her to be wed to Paris, and she seemingly dies. In the final scene, she is stretched out on her tomb and Romeo arrives. Tragically, Friar Lawrence's message has not gotten to Romeo in time, and he despairs, believing Juliet to be dead. After giving her a final kiss, he drinks a draft of poison. She awakes from her sleep, only to find that Romeo is dying. Determined to be with him, even in death, she stabs herself. They ask forgiveness of God and die in each other's arms. We're joined today by my good friend, stage director Cynthia Stokes, to talk about Romeo and Juliet. Cynthia, welcome. It's Thank good to you. Have you here. Oh, it's great to be here. Um, now, I know that you're working on our production of Romeo and Juliet. You're the stage director for yes. this particular production. <laughs> I know that's exciting for you and as, as well for us. Um, tell me just a little bit about how you think the, the original Shakespeare and the libretto for the Gounod opera parallel each other. I mean, my feeling just from reading the libretto is that they're pretty darn close, which is surprising. They are very close, but uh, the, the thing that I, I think is so interesting about what the, the what Gounod and his collaborators did was that they really pared down the Shakespeare text to sort of the best of what it was. They uh, got rid of some characters that really, when you think about it in the story, are not necessary. Uh, Montague and Lady Montague are gone. Lady Capulet is gone. But what happens instead is that the, the role of Gertrude, the nurse, really becomes, as much as she's pivotal in the, in the Shakespeare play, she really becomes such an important character in this telling of the story. There's also another character who's added, and his name is Stefano, and he's um, the page. The page, yeah, right. Yeah, page. He's and got a wonderful aria in the Gounod, but doesn't even exist in the Shakespeare. Huh? Exactly. He's sort of a combination, I think, of Balthazar and some of the, the younger boys that are Montagues. But yes, exactly. They needed something for a mezzo, and so they thought, well, let's just do a trouser roll. And, uh, and that's where he came from. That's interesting. Now, Gertrude in the original play is a very funny character and quite bawdy. She is. As I recall. How is she different in the opera? You know, it, there, there are a lot of similarities, actually, between the two of them. You know, I think that for Gertrude and for Friar Lawrence both, just like in the story, they both see that they can do the right thing, really, in a lot of ways, for the right reason. They see that they, too, can turn those families into something new. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's exactly what both of those those characters hope for. Friar Lawrence, of course, you know, lives, lives in rarefied air, as opposed to Gertrude, who is very much about the world and is sort of base and very sweet and, and charming and is in love with Juliet. Now, you're a stage director, not, not simply, uh, or not only um, um, an opera director, you've, you've directed lots of straight plays, as we'll call them, as well as opera. So I guess my big question for you is, if you were directing Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, would you approach it any differently than you're approaching the opera? 
on the same story and with essentially the same characters. How would you do things differently or, or would you? Well, that's a great question. You know, I think one of the things that's uh, essential with opera is that, you know, obviously you've got the music and with the Shakespeare, you've got iambic pentameter, you've got a rhythm that lives within the music and a rhythm that lives in the text. Um, I think that just there is one sort of difference between the way that actors uh, singing actors and speaking actors deal with things. Uh, with an opera schedule, you just have a very short amount of time. Right. And so I think that... Uh, because it's so expensive, I must, <laughs> I must add exactly. as a footnote, the reason that it's only a three-week rehearsal schedule mm -hmm. is but, simply because it is such an uh, exorbitantly expensive art form. Exactly. And so you need to move very quickly and offer, I think, uh, you know, great ideas to singing actors. When you have uh, just a text, You've got time for discovery and and time just to sit at the table and talk about what you think is the most important aspect. With a with an opera rehearsal, you the singers come in, they know the show, which is great. They know it as well as 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 you do when you're staging it. So really, you don't necessarily truncate, but you get a, a foot up in that process, and you can collaborate and work together and make decisions very quickly in that process. I've often heard from actors uh, that Shakespeare, that there's a music in Shakespeare. Do you think Gounod captures something of that music? Or am I way off base? Do I not understand what an actor means when they say that you have to, you have to sort of dip into the music of Shakespeare to really understand it and be able to perform it. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that, it, they, that it's almost as though Gounod takes what that, that rhythm and that music that's in the text and he amplifies it. Mm -hmm. So for example, the, the ballroom scene for Juliet, which is, uh, you know, I think sort of her, it's like a quinceanera, it's her coming, her coming out. Yeah. It's her coming out sure. party, that it feels like Cinderella's ball. The music is so beautiful, and 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 so that I think that what he does is he he makes the text even better. So he got it. I think he did. That's great. That's great. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. That's the Ballad of Queen Mab, sung by the character Mercutio in the first act of Gounod's Romeo and Juliet. The sound Gounod achieves from muted strings and rapid woodwind passages is the very definition of gossamer. It truly is a kind of sound picture of the text itself. This is one of the things that I think French composers are so good at, turning words into sounds and colors from both the voice and the orchestra so that the story of the opera can be fully told. In Romeo and Juliet, we have all kinds of moments like this. Listen, for instance, to the entrance aria for Juliet, Je veux vivre, in which she tells her nursemaid Gertrude that she doesn't want to be tied down. She wants to live and love and have the time of her life. Gounod expresses this through the dance form of the waltz.
Now that's a great tune, but what you don't get unless you're listening to the voice actually singing is that the text is broken up. We don't get the words in a straight sentence as if it were spoken. Je veux vivre dans le rêve qui m'enivre ce jour encore. It, not at all. It's je veux vivre dans le rêve qui, all broken up almost against the actual meaning of the text. Why? Because musically and rhythmically, it gives us the feeling of breathlessness, of the excitement that this young girl is feeling deep down in her soul. Je vivre dans le rêve. When Romeo and Juliet finally meet, again, Gounod uses purely musical means to describe the meeting. It's a duet, which the composer marks in the score as a madrigal, but that's a misnomer. What we've actually got here is a minuet, a courtly dance in gentle three-quarter time. But the use of a dance keeps us in the setting, which is a masked ball in honor of Juliet's birthday. It's almost as if the accompaniment for their duet is music being heard emanating from the ballroom next door. It's also a very tender, shy minuet, its character capturing the feeling of Romeo as he first approaches this beautiful young girl. Finally, in the balcony scene, we have music that absolutely recreates the feeling of night in Juliet's garden underneath her balcony. As the curtain goes up on this scene at the beginning of the second act, muted strings play an evocation of moonlight to the gentle rocking of a kind of lullaby. But the miraculous thing in this scene is Romeo's aria, his cavatina. The tune is an absolute outpouring of passionate love. This is young man's music as we get a textual paraphrase of the original Shakespeare text.
Music in opera always tells the real story, and in these few examples, and indeed in the rest of the opera, Gounod is absolutely at his best. some fine CDs of Gounod's Romeo and Juliet out there, as well as a number of DVDs, one of which I have here. So let's dig into them. I'm sure you'll find something to please every taste. Here's a CD of the opera conducted by Leonard Slatkin with the forces from the Munich Rundfunk Orchestra. It stars Placido Domingo and Ruth Ann Swenson as the two doomed lovers, with baritone Kurt Ullmann as Mercutio, and a real star turn by mezzo-soprano Susan Graham as the page Stefano. This is a lively and very well-produced CD with a solid cast. Another choice stars the husband-wife team of Roberto Alagna and Angela Georgiou, with Michel Plasson conducting the orchestra and chorus from Toulouse. José Fandam and Simon Keenleyside round out the cast. The two principals are in absolutely top form in this recording, and it's brilliantly recorded with fantastic sound coming from the orchestra. Here's an interesting choice with Franco Corelli and Mirella Freni in the title roles, conducted by Alain Lombard. It wouldn't be my first choice because Corelli's French is not ideal, but the singing, of course, is absolutely wonderful. And if you're looking for a live recording, you can't do better than this Operadoro recording with Jose Carreras and Patricia Wise from Barcelona in 1983. The excitement of this live performance is palpable, and you get Carreras in top form. In terms of DVDs, unfortunately, I only have this one to show you, although there are a number of others available, as I said before. This is a production from Salzburg that sparked much comment at its premiere because of the vocalism of the Romeo, Rolando Viazon, who is in great form here. His Juliet is Nino Makaidze, who was only 25 years old when this video was shot. Baritone Russell Brown is the Mercutio, and the conductor is Yannick Nézé-Séguin, a name that we're all going to be familiar with in the coming years, I'm sure. These are great resources that you'll find available at your favorite internet music store. Enjoy. The story of Romeo and Juliet has been set by opera composers dozens of times, but the only versions that seem to endure are those by Vincenzo Bellini, the composer of Norma, and Gounod's elegant French opera. The score is filled with tender and romantic music, as well as sizzling drama in its descriptions of the dueling passions of these two feuding families. A production of Romeo and Juliet is still rare enough in these parts that to miss it is simply not an option if you're an opera lover. I'm Nick Ravellis, and I'll see you at the opera. <laughs>